and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. I know at some point I'm going to start sounding like a broken record all the time. Uh, some of it is just, you know, I'm a teacher and pretty much every day is a broken record. Uh, at this point, now that we're teaching at home, my husband sits in the same room as I do, and he's constantly making fun of me, because I will go through the same exact sort of stuff so many times. Uh, so some of that's kind of just the constant cycle of what it is to just be a teacher and deal with the curriculum. So, you know, I'll, I'll probably end up coming back to this same kind of thing, the cyclical routine day in, day out, when we get to some of the existential stuff later on. But... Um, a lot of it really just is that, you know, as somebody who's got a limited education, as I think is probably the case for most people, that there are just certain things that stick out and, and certain texts that I've just um, really come to love and really come to delve deep into. So it's, you know, it's sensical that I keep coming back to the same few that are incredibly influential for me. Um, but those are the kinds of things that stick in my mind, and, you know, as I'm reading all these different literary pieces and watching different movies, these are the things I keep coming back to. So, look at that! <laughs> Something of a meta-level sort of thing about pretty much where I'm gonna go with this episode today. Um, so, to look back, last episode we kind of looked at the really interesting approach that C.S. Lewis infuses his kind of utopian vision here in Out of the Silent Planet and particularly the way he looks at the Harassa species and their view of memory. Um, Ransom, Ransom, our main character, his friend Hoy, one of the Harassa species, uh, argues for this really interesting view of memory as an event and the event and the experience as extensions of each other, rather than that kind of direct contrast we get with our own modern understanding of how memory and the event are really separated and in a sense the memory is the thing that is the degraded abstraction of the experience. Thanks David Hume. <laughs> it's really up to him. So it's an interesting idea that C.S. Lewis is kind of positing here for us, though I'm not really sure I think humans can get to that kind of headspace regularly. Um, we're just in a much more fast-paced world. I mean, you see the characters in Out of the Silent Planet live a very simple, uh, kind of almost transcendental uh, life where you don't get quite that same kind of hustle-bustle, which might actually be a good thing, maybe, and that's kind of part of the point. Um, but that, you know, our fast-paced world, our experience is really just, it's sold to us as a commodity, uh, and time is money and all of that. And our discussions of things tend to kind of just happen in those snapshots. And we get these imagistic moments uh, that begin and they end. And really our concept of time feels that way too. There's beginning and end. And there's uh, pieces and chunks. And we think look at things as parts rather than as wholes. So I kind of want to reach back to some of that. Um, bits of the episode. And in some of the other series as well, where I've talked really at length about Paul Ricoeur, who's, I really just love his stuff. Um, but looking at his exercise of memory and forgetting, and in particular, the conscious activity that it's really part of our duty to do something of historical remembrance. So he argues uh, that both of our conscious activities here are necessary, the memory and the forgetting, and that this plays a part in our duty to the past. 
and that we have to really make some kind of a conscious effort to construct a correct, a right remembrance. And that word is moral for a reason. And forget that we have right emotions um, in those moments as well. And in letting go of that, we can kind of build enough historical distance without, without being too separate from the immediate event. Uh, that we get, you know, a, a release from the trauma, but still something of, of the factual moment. Um, and this is especially really the case uh, as Paul recurs for stuff that's formative. Um, and then by extension, kind of, you know, the traumatic events that here you've got the past uh, and those dwindling voices of firsthand perspective. So as second and, you know, even third, fourth hand arbiters of history, um, it, it's really our duty, Recur says, that we carry on a collective cultural memory for the victims uh, of these particular moments, these traumatic moments. And this suggests that the role of forgetting might also actually have a positive moral significance in this as well. So in looking at events like the Holocaust, which is particularly what he's looking at in this piece... Um, you know, we are now getting historically distanced enough that we no longer will soon have people who were immediately present. And so, in order to continue the lessons, to continue the moment, and make sure that we don't forget that it was an actual occurrence and learn from that occurrence, um, that we as the secondhand listeners... Um, the collectors of these historical perspectives, that it's our duty to listen and it's our duty to collect and to arrange in a way that's meaningful, that still presents the situation as truth. So interestingly, Lewis doesn't really let go of this discussion of memory either. This moment with the Harasa is not the only moment. Uh, and so he really goes on to have the second of his three species, the Sorn, who, for most of the book, Ransom's been trying to stay away from. Uh, he ends up having to go to the Sorn at this point and um, learn from really his inappropriate uh, understanding of them that's built on a lot of, you know, historical premises, but we'll get back to that. Um, but they really also embody this, this concept of memory, and in particular, the history, uh, the historical memory and what they do with that. So... The Sorn, you know, he he initially fears them, and he sees this kind of creepy vision of aliens that we always seem to come to. Uh, and you get to think back to, like, the 90s, right? And they had those lollipops that you could buy that had the glow sticks in the, in the um, handle. And you could, you know, break them, and your lollipop would glow. And they were the very traditional version of what we see as alien, where you've got the giant heads, their super big black eyes, the skinny, super lanky, the creepy bodies. Um, but then he comes to realize that, you know, even though the Sorns kind of embody exactly this view, that they're not really at all threatening. Um, and like the Harasa, uh, they also stay within their means and talents. So while, you know, the Harasa are, you know, poetic and artisanal, you know, you don't have that so much here with the Sorn, but instead the Sorn are really just like the wise old sage of kind of this ancient lore on this planet. And they are the keepers of fact and history. Uh, and then you've got the fifth Triggy, which we'll come back to, and we haven't really seen them yet. Uh, but they are really kind of the, the appetitive part of the Greek philosophical tradition. You've got the Harasa, who are the spirit, and the Sorn, who kind of seem to be the philosopher kings. Uh, if you look at, you know, kind of attaching Plato's philosophy here 
and then you get them as kind of the societal representation of the intellect. But unlike humans who pretty much we, you know, offload our historical facts and our narratives and we put them in books, the Sorens kind of follow that old-fashioned oral tradition of our native populations. So they store everything in the mind. It's constantly repeated uh, and practiced and passed down. And this is, in essence, what they live to do, is to constantly look back, regurgitate, interpretate, anal- or interpret and, and analyze these narrative traditions that are part of their planet. And so there's kind of this reverent duty, this ethical sense toward that kind of recovery. So naturally, when you get these two creatures together, the group of um, Sorn and you get Ransom, and their interests are in putting together and building a full picture of history, including not just their own planet, but the others that they're aware of, um, as creatures who care really very much about this full knowledge and the full picture of what is. Uh, the Sorn almost kind of use Ransom in a sense, and they grill him for all the details of what it is to have life on Earth. The cosmic, the chemical, biological, the material details of his life and just in general life on Earth and history. And so in the, in the conversation at this point, he's got a point of contact, which is Augre. Um, Ransom remarks on the way that they interrogate him. He had to decide from the outset that he would be quite frank, for he now felt that it would not be now, which is Malachandra's word for, in essence, kind of person, and also that it would be unavailing to do otherwise. They were astonished at what he had to tell them of human history, of war, slavery, and prostitution. It is because they have no Yarsa, said one of the pupils. It is because every one of them wants to be a little Yarsa himself, said Agre. They cannot help it, said the old Sorn. There must be rule, yet how can creatures rule themselves? Beasts must be ruled by now and now by Eldala and Eldala by Melodil. These creatures have no Eldala. They are like one trying to lift himself by his own hair, or one trying to see over a whole country when he is on level with it, like a female trying to get young on herself. Two things about our world particularly struck in their minds. One was the extraordinary degree to which problems of lifting and carrying things absorbed our energy. And really the key here is, you know, gravity. (laughs) The other was the fact that we had only one kind of now. They thought this must have far-reaching effects in the narrowing of sympathies and even a thought. Your thought must be at the mercy of your blood, said the old Sorn, for you cannot compare it with the thought that floats on a different blood. It was a tying it tiring and very disagreeable conversation for Ransom. Many, many interesting things are raised um, by their line of questioning here. And in his analysis after the fact, uh, there's also quite a bit of intrigue, though I really want to look at two things here. One is the issue of egocentrism that's consistent with our experience on Earth as kind of being the highest. Uh, and in many minds, we you know might even be the only uh, higher order consciousness thinking being. And really the second um, of this kind of structured order to authority that's, you know, clearly because of Lewis's background, consistent with some traditional church doctrine, you've got this kind of softly deterministic argument that it brings up here uh, on the issue particularly of self-reliance and reason and, you know, kind of a personal balance and the balance to nature as well. So I want to start with the second thing, I think, and then later I'll come back to the first. 
Part of this idea harkens back to the last episode um, in this podcast. We were discussing the need for free will and how that can align to that idea that's central in God and in particular the argument that he makes for God in mere Christianity. He makes actually a, a pretty similar argument in a little descriptive narrative passage here of another book called The Problem of Pain, uh, which is another of his, where he has this to say. For long centuries, God perfected the animal form which was to become the vehicle of humanity in the image of himself. He gave it hands whose thumbs could be applied to each of the fingers and jaws and teeth and throat capable of articulation and a brain sufficiently complex to execute all the material motions whereby rational thought is incarnated. The creature may have existed in this state for ages before it became man. It may even have been clever enough to make things which a modern archaeologist would accept as proof of its humanity. But it was only an animal because all its psych physical and psychical processes were directed to purely material and natural ends. Then, in the fullness of time, God caused to descend upon this organism, both on its psychology and physiology, a new kind of consciousness which could say I and me, which could look upon itself as an object, which knew God, which could make judgments of truth, beauty, and goodness, and which was so far above time that it could perceive time flowing past. We do not know how many of these creatures God made, nor how long they continued in the paradisal state. But sooner or later, they fell. Someone or something whispered that they could become as gods. They wanted some corner of the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours. But there is no such corner. They wanted to be nouns, but they were and eternally must be mere adjectives. And that's probably my favorite line of the whole thing because I just don't know what to make of it. We have no idea in what particular act or series of acts the self-contradictory impossible wish found expression. For all I can see, it might have concerned the literal eating of a fruit. The question is of no consequence. Of course, there's a not-so-veiled reference here to Eden, uh, the fall, eating of the fruit, all the original sin that comes with that. But even then, um, you know, the, the Hebrews, at least for a while, had direct contact and direct access to God. Uh, both many of the individuals who become the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, or at least, you know, had some level of authority that they could they could go to. Uh, whether this was high priests, you also had the, the presence of God through the fire of the tabernacle, you had the prophets. Uh, and eventually, you know, with more skepticism later on in the New Testament, through Christ himself. So, it is the choice, that act of will, that, you know, and looking back to last, last episode as well, brings with it that distance uh, and the possibility of doing and wanting other than God, and with it, the desired position of being as God, um, and having that kind of personal power and complete independence. The Sorn recognize this, and that's part of their assessment here of Ransom's telling of history, at least the history of Earth. That authority is something that we as humans seem to have very little faith in, uh, or we just lack it substantially or really entirely. And it's this egocentrism that runs really completely unchecked. I guess we could kind of liken this to world hierarchy uh, and independence of will on Malachandra to something kind of like the Catholic Church, or at least some level of Catholic doctrine. You got this idea of papal authority, um, which you get in connection with their individual discussions of the creator, Melodil, 
Um, on Malachandra, you also have access to Melodil through Yarsa, who's kind of like a pope. You also have the Eldala, who might actually be something kind of like priests, or even if you wanted to go a supernatural route, something kind of like archangels. Uh, and then obviously, you know, like I said, you have Melodil, the maker of all the worlds himself. So as a result, um, the people of Malachandra don't have to do the same kind of guesswork that we do with their metaphysics. It comes directly to them. They just get to accept them as natural. And this higher order of, of being and metaphysical truth goes for them without any need for question or any skepticism. And they don't really even need to will anything here because there's not a choice that needs to be made. It's very present. So I don't really mean yet to suggest that the people of Malachandra are stuck in this really deterministic system uh, and that they're just, you know, semi-independent machines or drones and that they don't really have any personal will because they do. And Lewis makes a very big um, push for that uh, and recognition of that. And he talks about it pretty willingly in multiple s sections in particular with some of the characters in the Harasa in particular. It's just really interesting uh, because they don't need to question the authority structure because it's always there. So they get to function on a particular purpose and in order and they basically just accept it. And so they don't really have any of that, um, that warring of power necessary that we seem to have because we are wayward <laughs> in a lot of ways. We don't know. Um, and in that sense, they wag their fingers at us. Um, in the book as humans for being the unsophisticated hacks <laughs> and suggest that maybe it's because we don't have anything like that for ourselves that we go wrong or bent or bad, which is, I guess, fair enough. Um, in a lot of situations, we kind of do fancy ourselves as the god. But it, to some extent, I don't know that this assessment is really all that fair. Um, you know, we don't have that same immediate access to metaphysical hierarchy and certainty. To be fair, I mean, the Bible is pretty much little littered with examples of people who choose against the authority in a lot of ways, uh, even when it's meaningfully God himself. Um, so, you know, if we're looking at this from a, a biblical Christian standpoint, as Lewis is, obviously, um, you've had plenty of instances where, you know, God gives a command and the people don't listen. You've got the golden calf uh, during the time when Moses is away looking for and getting the commandments from God. You've got the Tower of Babel. You've got Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, it's pretty pretty clear and in indicating that we won't listen to authority even when it's literally right in front of us. So, you know, he may not be wrong, and he might, you know, be safe in this assessment to say that we don't care about authority even when it's presented to us. So, you know, in this sense, even if we had... Um, you know, a creature like Oyarsa or the Eldala or anything like that come down and say, hey, this is how it works now. And we would probably be, you know, seriously in question here. So it is kind of an interesting point to make. But I guess so long as we still have to grasp around in the dark, which we do, and that that dark is something for us to grasp around in, we're just going to assume that we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is exactly the same kind of analogy that they're using here as the Sorn are making fun of us, uh, being able to pull oneself up by one's hair, because it's just not possible. And it's funny that we always rely on this phrase, especially as Americans, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is meant to be satiristically impossible, because it is. You can't. It doesn't work that way. The physics aren't there. So it's it's 
the same kind of analogy being made here. We're always looking to be the authorities of ourselves, but what they're, what we're trying to do is functionally not possible. Which kind of leads us back to the first point that was made earlier, the egocentrism. So the sworn note that they're, you know, in the midst of their metaphysic, they've got significantly more types of now. Um, like I said, we can interpret this as kind of their word for person or even metaphysically something like a soul. And uh, even maybe even more scientifically, you know, the higher level cognitive functioning and intelligence. Um, and that, you know, you get to give that perspective to the event and the situations and the results are just better for their dynamic. That you get to have those multiple um, viewpoints happening. Now again, we go back to our world, and yes, we have a divergence of views. We have multiple cultures and religions and languages and all those kinds of things that span our globe. And But then you have to think about the way we treat those. Uh, we even see the way we treat other living beings here and other living things in our world without a whole lot of sympathy or even much empathy for those that are within our species itself and somehow... It always takes these massively catastrophic events in history for us to even build an ounce or an iota of kinship um, with even just the people that live right next to us, let alone, you know, a love for the whole thing, uh, the whole of humanity. It's really difficult for us. Um, Lewis makes room for this problem, um, and he talks about it in The Four Loves, another of his works. I know I'm going through quite a bit of, <laughs> you think I would be a scholar of C.S. Lewis, and like I said, we had the, uh, the president of the C.S. Lewis Foundation in my college when I was a student, so yeah, I got an earful, I think, of C.S. Lewis. Um, but in The Four Loves, he talks about you know, the four loves, and one of them, the highest one, he argues, is what's called agape. Um, which kind of translates into roughly three things. The love of self, the love of thy neighbor as thyself, and the love for and from God. And it's inherently the only type of the four loves that is in and of itself a love that has to be chosen or, or willed. So it, it makes this an intellectual type of love, which really is the only one that does that and the rest are are almost in any way kind of emotionally and materially substantive uh, and this one deviates from that and you can kind of see it in the other three so if you've got familial love where a genetic and biologically based material existence exists between those two things um, for romantic again you've got that instinctual carnal and procreative type of love that's also materially based biological for friendship, it gets a little sticky because friendship's always kind of interesting. And even Aristotle will talk about this in his own philosophies as being kind of the odd man out, the most unnatural of the loves. Because it's really about a shared object of experience, an event or, um, you know, some kind of, ex of, of shared like. Um, it could be a sport, something like that, a shared activity uh, or a, a shared interest, something like that. And so when the interest, the object, the experience, the event is gone... Um, you know, the friendship itself may not subsist as much, which makes sense. And if you think about, you know, here, uh, students who are seniors, who are about to graduate, who have been in the same circles with their friends, who played, you know, the same sports for multiple years, uh, and you see almost traditionally year after year, a lot of those friendships that were built in those shared objects dissipate because of changing, you know, scenes or changing experiences or anything like that and it's just kind of natural that those friendships end when the shared experience also ends and everybody goes their own separate ways 
But all three of those different loves are based in matter, in objective, you know, reality. So when we look at love of self and agape in all three of its iterations, for love of self, it's really about us desiring what's best for ourselves. And this happens for us, even if we don't particularly like ourselves on a given moment. Uh, Self-loathing is something that we do, and it's fairly frequent enough that we kind of understand the experience. But even if we're punishing ourselves for something that we've done in the moment, we really hope at the end of the punishment that we're making ourselves better for the future. And so there's always a thinking forward and an empathetic kind of movement towards goodness in the future. So our love of God, likewise, you know, God isn't an object, so he's not a material being. You aren't going to be best friends with God because it's not the same dynamic. We aren't having a shared object in that sense because he's not objective. So we can't connect to him to the same degree with those other three loves. It's just not possible. So this love, again, has to be willed. It's chosen. And this kind of love in choosing to align our wills to God's as he gives us all these things to command and we demonstrate them uh, and continue to follow those commandments and teaching and the like. And that's kind of our shared our share, shared object of love and our shared mode uh, of doing and relating and willing that kind of intellectualized love, which does come from the intellect because it's based in understanding that is shared through the word logos. Love of neighbor and fellow man kind of follows the same premise. We don't even know each other often. The object isn't shared because the person that you're supposedly loving may not even be near you in an objective sense. Somebody on the other side of the world who you've never met, who has no name, you know, that's relevant to you on a personal level. And, you know, obviously we don't always like each other and we don't have to. Um, at least on a physical level all the time, but empathy plays into this and it's a required intellectual and constant and overly renewed moment after moment choice of wanting what's best for other people in the same way that we want what's best for ourselves. And we have to constantly make an active volitional and cognitive choice that demonstrates that act of willing and our actions that we do that stem from that willed love have to match. So the creatures of Melochondra, they recognize the personhood of all three of the different species who look different, they act different, they have different interests, they have different abilities, they have different languages. Um, But together, it's a good scenario here in the book of this practice in empathy uh, in, in this kind of love agape. Their sympathies are constantly in check. They're constantly having to be practiced because they're always near and they're always connected and needing something from the others. In a lot of ways, this is a lot like the comment that the character Illidge makes in Huxley's novel Point Counterpoint regarding the differences between the rich and the poor. Uh, When we're confronted with different kinds of people and perspectives and viewpoints and languages and cultures, we're just a lot more likely to work the willing for that well-being. Uh, and making the choices that are good for all in that way and doing some of that compromise and having that empathy build because we're practiced in it. Uh, To do so from a distance is just a lot more difficult and requires a lot more imagination than, you know, we may have cultivated. So this is why we have conversations constantly these days 
in, in process of trying to diversify the narratives, the curriculums in school, the places where people go, the movies, right? Making sure everybody is represented in our toys and everything. Uh, and this is why we fear things so substantively about displacement and assimilation and gentrification, because it really does. Not only, you know, is it detrimental for those cultures and those languages and those people who adhere to them, but it also kills our chances at learning from any of those differences and training our empathy and exercising this kind of love of will. We, you know, you cannot love the neighbors if the neighbors are nowhere to be found. The Sorn really claim here that the lack of other conscious beings makes that difficult for us. Even though we can't do it within our own species, it might have been better trained if there were others. Um, and so that, that might be the issue, and it's a specifically and narrowly human, uh, and even if we don't always see it that way because, you know, we sit here in our differences that are extensive that we kind of fail to see any other as human, uh, I wonder if it would be different here if there were other kinds of conscious beings, um, and if we could contend with that and, and what that would force us to recognition of what it is to be human, and maybe there would be more similarities than difference. I mean, I don't know. Something to think about maybe in later episodes. But yeah, there's, there's a ton of current discussion in the cognitive and biological sciences and psychology and, of course, in philosophy and ethics regarding the nature of this personhood question and whether we're being maybe unnecessarily narrowed in how we recognize that and if there could also be other species, even on our own planet, uh, outside of ourselves that deserve that kind of level of recognition. Uh, this definitely obviously has incre incredibly far-reaching effects um, that are absolutely worth ethically mentioning. So if you start classifying things like dolphins, which are typically part of this conversation and might actually fit quite nicely, uh, if we start calling them persons and they qualify then for greater protections, you get ethical and legal issues in our current language that would support this, we might then have to consider any accidental deaths that are caused by fishing nets and things like that, something like manslaughter or maybe even forms of murder. I, obviously, this has massive social and legal consequence, um, which is just beyond our current scope right now. Uh, but even then, you could add animals to this conversation like elephants who very much recognize and mourn and have, um, you know, hindsight and, and relevant analysis of that hindsight and learning patterns. You have chimps and other apes that are just lesser forms of our own intelligence. Um, octopus, which, I mean, I can't even eat anymore. Uh, they're just real. It's, it's an icky. Those make me feel kind of icky. Uh, and because they are so complex and, and f there's recognition of forethought and things like that that we thought were uniquely human that may not actually be uniquely human. So this is a, it's, it's a question that's emerging from a lot of these different individual studies that are kind of converging on this issue of personhood. But unlike the species of Malacrandra who, you know, they share a language, which helps, we don't have that. Uh, which it just still leaves us alone in our own consciousness, it leaves us in our own linguistic bubble, um, and, you know, all, all of it is based in human, narrowed human thought. And the egocentrism is easy as a result. This you know, isn't a new or modern problem. We've been at this for years and years and years philosophically. Uh, in fact, people who really look at the historical movements of environmental philosophy, which is becoming a, a very emergent discussion in all kinds of places, but definitely in philosophy too, uh, we can kind of trace our relationship to and within nature back through the different epochs of 
um, philosophical thought. And in particular, the emergence of our own modern environmental problems go back to this human changing mindset about our relationship to nature. Uh, and a lot of this goes back to that idea of hierarchy. We see it in all kinds of different places, but in particular in kind of the classification philosophies that happen in Aristotle's work on the soul, among other things that he's written. Um, his enterprise is really just to figure out how to rectify his arguments for causality, the four causes and what makes things, things, uh, and really understand the nature of what it is for the soul, uh, what he's you know trying to mean in terms of purpose. This is a teleological view. It looks at the concept of ends, uh, telos of purpose, and it really aims to understand how those things fit together and how we have this kind of ordered existence where everything inherently has meaning and value in relationship to itself and to everything else. So his enterprise is, is in a lot of ways scientific to do the unification and division of experience and reality and material to figure out how everything purposefully fits together, like taking apart a watch, putting it back together. Um, but it's different than what the moderns, you know, will do, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But if you look at, you know, his concept of how things get justified, it's a matter of how and what. So the four causes of his argument, you've got material or the stuff that things are made out of. I tell my students this is the meat, right, the thing, the stuff, the material. The formal, the plan for its construction, the blueprint in essence. Then you've got the efficient cause, which is all the energy that goes into taking the material and putting it into that form, but going through the process of making something. And then ultimately you have its final cause, or its telos, its purpose. And for a thing to be a thing, you've got to go through all four of those and use the thing as it's intended, which is part of its essence. So with living things, which is really what Aristotle is actually kind of interested in, it's really that final part that's, that's the difficult part. What is our purpose as human beings? Well, who knows? Broadly speaking, it's, you know, as a living being, our purpose is to live, but that might mean different things for different kinds of beings. And so Aristotle's really looking for, you know, whether or not there are different types of soul, different purpose, or if there's something unifying that we're accessing different parts of. So in this, he goes to actually building kind of a hierarchy of what it is to live, uh, and each one builds upon the prior. So to live and live well for the first level, plants, is to be, you know, self-nutritive, to grow, to decay. For lower animals, it's to do that and to use abilities for sensation. For higher animals, it's to do both of those things and to then exercise motion. And then he puts on top of this, of course, in the hierarchy, as we always do, man, which is consistent with also kind of the biblical premises that you get in Genesis, which we'll get into in a second, too. You got man who's on top, who does all of those four things, to be self-nutritive, to have sensation, and to m move and perceive, but also then to additionally add on top of that the one thing that, you know, we have is as being species, but they don't, which is intellect. And so as a result of this, you got man sitting on top of the hierarchy that it's built. <laughs> of course, that he's built as man. So the Neo-Aristotelians, of course, in the uh, medieval period, love this. They loved everything Aristotle. And they follow suit. And so early church doctrine tends to kind of go along the same pattern as well. And you see uh, St. Aquinas, who reasons very similarly to this in his Summa Theologica, which, of course, was taking a lot of Aristotle's system and then kind of just slapped the Bible right on top of it. 
and he goes back to give this name to the unmoved mover that sits at the beginning of all the causal chains at the end of Aristotle's line of causality. And, um, you know, he, Aquinas then goes on to suggest that the bestowing of the power of endowing existent beings with purpose is the creator, the God who makes it. And so then they go back and give this the title of God of the Bible, who then's pretty much responsible for sitting us atop the hierarchy. He is outside the hierarchy and puts us at the top of it. And it's really consistent, like I said, with the language that's in the Old Testament in Genesis at the very onset of creation. Chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The language continues to give man control throughout this section, um, giving him the power to subdue, which is a word that comes up in it often, uh, all those other creatures to name them. But still, you know, it wasn't meant to be a power trip kind of thing here, at least in the early parts of the Bible, at least in Genesis and the, e and the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's plenty there to suggest that man is part of the natural order and not just on top of it. And this isn't just something to do with power, but he has a massive responsibility to ensuring that nature stays in that order and good. So you think at natural order theories, uh, and those have been manipulated for things like the divine right of kingship and all that too, so it's hard to talk about it. Um, but it really took an interesting turn in the modern world, and we can thank guys like Descartes uh, and his very off-putting, really mechanical portrayal in a work called The Treatise of Man, uh, where you know we get our nature and even our own bodily functions in kind of this mechanical way, and it's... You know, it's it's interesting in light of today's discussions of artificial intelligence because, you know, here we are trying to use the Turing test to determine AI like us, and you've got Descartes doing just a fine enough job of making us like AI. Uh, but even before that, you know, obviously it was a real thing. So there's a lot of good reasons in the early modern world of Descartes to really start the whole healthy skepticism thing, so I can't really blame him for that. You had the, you know, inquisitions in the church. You had the schisms. Um, you had a very unhealthy church-state takeover in things like, you know, Anglicanism, where you've got the British king who's now head of state and head of church at once. And, you know, obviously there's just a general lack of access to thinking and education and all of that at the time. But then you get the Reformation and you get the rise of scientific thinking and all of these kinds of breaks with tradition. And the skepticism that came with that in the historical moment plays itself out philosophically as well. Um, and so, you know, the skepticism and the role of the church in philosophy, which was at that point very much established... Uh, as kind of the same thing, and same with science. So when you get all these breaks with the traditions of thinking, you also get breaks with the philosophies of Aristotle and those views of nature. So Descartes, in his Cogito Ergo Sum, the I think, therefore I am, he begins the enterprise of tearing down and then trying to build back up uh, and see what a, a fracturing of knowledge into kind of these specialized groups will mean. Um, and what he does is he, he really emphasizes the idea of parts um, rather than wholes. And so 
it's unfortunate in the modern sense because holes never really seem to be put back together in the same way, whereas you have the unification and division of Aristotle, you really only have the division here in the modern world, taking things apart and putting them into specialized technical studies, and so now you've got this niche view of nature that happens in chemistry and biology and physics and all of these other places as well. And we never really get a holistic image of it because everybody's dealing with these very technical, jargony, um, singular views. And this has had, you know, far-reaching effects on our understanding of nature as kind of this industrial resource because now it's just a mechanical thing. Uh, and because we have reason and we can manipulate the thing mentally, then we must be able to manipulate it physically as well. So it kind of goes over and against what's being advocated in Genesis, that this is, you know, us as part of a whole of nature, but rather now, because reason allows me to understand and pick it apart, I can manipulate it not just intellectually, but also economically. Which raises massive, massive ethical concerns, and you can see how those issues have happened to us, uh, the commodification problem that we have today, uh, and all of the reaching effects that this has had on pretty much every facet of our current environmental situation or system. So either way, you know, Lewis and his Sorns and Out of the Silent Planets sort of seem to suggest that this hierarchy of thinking doesn't really have to be. Uh, and it's, it's really strange to ransom because this is an embedded part of our cultural understanding of things and it stems way back in our systemic thinking that there is this kind of hierarchy. And it really just goes to show that the ignorance of his thinking is quite constant in this book. He constantly fails to really be able to rectify it, especially on this particular issue. He constantly is always defaulting back to that kind of hierarchical thinking and it always goes back to him, to intelligence really as the source of that kind of power, what puts us at the top. And so he says in the you know, middle of the chapters, Was Oyarsa a god? As he's thinking about how this all fits together metaphysically, perhaps the very idol to whom the Sorns wanted to sacrifice him. But the Harasa, though they said strange things about him, clearly denied that he was a god. There was one god, according to them, Meldil the Young. Nor was it possible to imagine Hoy or Nora worshipping a blood-stained idol. Unless, of course, the Harasa were, after all, under the thumb of the Sorns, superior to their masters in all the qualities that human beings value, but intellectually inferior to them and dependent on them. It would be a strange but not an inconceivable world. Heroism and poetry at the bottom, cold scientific intelligence above it, and overtopping all, some dark superstition with scientific intellect helpless against the revenge of the emotional depths it had ignored, and neither will nor power to remove. Even the type of intelligence, you know, is played into some kind of hierarchy here, which is also not really a new thing. Plato's divided line, in essence, kind of does the same thing. You've got the subject matter of thought uh, as not really his endeavor here, but it, it kind of plays to that. The fact that art is placed here below science says something, I think, more about Lewis's world and a lot in terms of our own, because I think we all kind of do ascribe to this in academic circles, or at least we've heard it many, many times. His feelings aren't foreign here. We talked about aporia, we talked about the fear of the unknown and how he's expressing it pretty generally. Um, and he, as he's generally, you know, questioning the structure of the beliefs that exist on this planet. It makes sense, given that his educative background is a philologist, 
And to some extent, you know, it, it's not a surprise that he sees it this way, because Mala, like it is here in Malachandra and Melodil, plays to that Greek and Latin etymology where mal or male translates into something super negative in its connotation, bad, abnormal, ill, so on. But at the same time, at this point in the novel, it's kind of inexcusable because he spent a considerable amount of time not just learning the language, but also all of the historical cultural things and the economics and the politics and this general environment, specifically of the Harasa, but also, you know, learning from them about the rest of the planet too. And he seems to have built a pretty, you know, strong bond with at least a few of them and at least a general appreciation for them as a species also. And yet, in all of his time breaking the barriers of kind of his typical human default responses, as soon as he leaves the Harasa, he goes right back to that kind of automatic, basic human assumption. Uh, this egocentric view, it all comes back. That human understanding and the conventions of definitions really limit his ability to kind of entertain other possibilities. Um, and that it doesn't have to be a, a structural hierarchy in the same kind of power dynamic here on Malachandra. The initial question regarding the nature of Oyarsa in this passage, and in particular the Soren's relation to it, goes back to an even more base and primal instinct that I think, you know, Ransom here probably wouldn't have personally experienced himself, but he makes some res reference to kind of those historical tribal customs of human sacrifice, uh, and in particular to the gods. Which, of course, this comes from Earth, so his first respond response here is to kind of design the Sorns for that sort of thing, even though there's nothing indicative of his experience on this planet so far that would suggest that this is the case. Note that, you know, this isn't one that really requires any high sophistication or intellectual, um, you know, or traditionally defined civilized behavior. Uh, it, it's something that very typically in our own historical understandings of humans we would call lesser, lesser behavior, savage behavior, something that we've already kind of left behind in our civilized human world here. So without much thought, he continues to kind of place his own cultural past into the context of his understanding here of this planet and goes right on ahead and builds a whole bunch of assumptions that his, in essence, own sophisticated human civilized behavior is socially and morally superior in some way. I'm trying to look for ways to make himself out to be, you know, the high, the high part of the story. And then he moves into kind of figuring out some way to contextualize Oyarsa and by extension Meldil, um, which he then equates to his own understanding of God, which I mean, to be fair, it's Lewis, he is doing that here, so it is kind of a heavy-handed allegory in that way. But Ransom, you know, naively never really gets beyond that human conception. Uh, he does distinctly allude to the same kind of dualism that Lewis was aiming to debunk in that section of Mere Christianity from our last episode. But he does this here in kind of stating the disbelief that the Harasa, especially the ones that he's friends with, would worship something or someone that would be considered kind of a quote-unquote blood-stained idol. Inherent here in this discussion of the good power versus the evil one, you've got to throw back again to Descartes and his methodological doubt and the idea that there could be a, you know, crazy demon out there that's tricking us into perceiving that what we see in this real world is some kind of, uh, you know, false creation, uh, kind of a solipsist sort of, you know, false reality. Which, you know, in, in the philosophy, Descartes goes on to dismantle all of that. And the whole point of his enterprise is to rebuild the possibility of our world being actually really real. Uh, but And not really 
built by anything but a real creative and ben benevolent actual divine being as well. So he was kind of working to that same design. Um, Ransom concludes, though, that it wouldn't really be possible for, you know, what he knows about his friends to actually worship such a god, and so he dispels that idea. And thus, you know, in a way, he kind of attaches to Melodil the same kind of intentions that Lewis would in his own argument for God, of course. But really, uh, it's Ransom's most egregious misstep in trying to structure Melochondrian society in the way that we would do for ourselves. And he does this throughout the book. Here, you've got three distinct, sentient, conscious persons. For Ransom, the immediate and most unchallenged assumption is that one of them has to have the power over the others. One of them has to be better in some way. One of them sits atop this hierarchy. And, of course, he kind of measures alignment the same way that we give us the alignment power intelligence. So he goes on to humanly judge the types of intelligence, placing the practical artisanal skills of the fifth trigi at the bottom. You've got the artistic poesy of the harasa in the center. And then you've got scientific knowledge and factual-based uh, historical, you know, understandings that the Sorn kind of carry in this world at the top. And then from there you've got that mysticism of religion that kind of takes over the super-rational stuff. But it really nicely fits, again, with that platonic conception of soul that, for sure, you know, you've got the appetitive that sits at the bottom, the spirit that sits in the center, and the rational that dominates and orders and balances them all together. So this is a, an absolute tradition in our Western understanding that somebody who studies philology at the university and is a professor would absolutely be aware of. And this is the basis in Plato's philosophy of that kind of philosopher king image, but we have to remember it's an image. This might be a fun argument to make. I think I'll save that for next episode. So I'll back up, you know, for the end here, just to address something that is said that maybe throws me a little bit here. In that passage, Ransom claims that the Harasa are superior to their masters in all the qualities that human beings value, speaking of the positions in relationship to the Soren in his mind, and yet I, I have a really hard time understanding what qualities he's talking about here. Does he mean, you know, their ideas of artistry? Is it their philosophical understandings of death, which, you know, at this point we haven't even really got into yet. That's something for next episode. Or is it the concepts of value and worth that they ascribe, or their stoic detachment? Or is it something, um, you know, their seemingly superior physical prowess, uh, or their crafting ability? So maybe I kind of do disagree with them here, although I'm not really too sure. Uh, I don't know too many places where humans actually do value those ideas as qualities human beings value, or at least I don't know that we value them more so than the ones he's attached to the Sorn in his need to devalue the Harasa as their intellectual inferior independent peers. So any of these definitions we've covered, the ideas of superior consciousness, intellect, uh, the independence of will, um, you know, I've shown up previously in a lot of different philosophies to be the basis of that hierarchical climb that we use for getting to the top, that egocentrism that we um, justify. So I might believe that humans should think those kind of artistic, emotional, more subjective qualities um, that he's here attributed to the Harasa as noble, and maybe we should value those, and, I, and, and to some extent I definitely think we do, and we should. I just don't know that I buy that we value them more, I think. Uh, and you can see this in the way we treat academia, as we've said in, in prior parts here. 
But, you know, we'll get to some of this in later chapters, too. And I think he'll tackle this a little bit more, although I think he seems to kind of try to refute this. Uh, And Weston, who we haven't seen in several chapters when he comes back into view here, really ends up attaching his own personal views of human elect above that of this savage species um, that he's met here on Malacandra. And even he seems pretty blindly and foolishly to believe in his own intellectual dominance uh, over some of the things that we've listed here as those kinds of qualities. So I don't know if it's necessarily true today. Um, I mean, there are a whole lot of strains of anti-intellectualism and distrust in science, and we'll have to figure kind of out how philosophy in the next hundred years or so is going to feel about all of that, which will be a pretty interesting enterprise uh, from a good detachment, I think, if we're not living it. Um, so, you know, the Sorn, though, really might be right to criticize Ransom and his attachment here to our human constructs and the definitions, uh, and, you know, that we severely are limiting our open-mindedness, and we really, you know, need to get uh, a good picture of Malachandra here, where we've got society of differences that actually functions. So, unlike, you know, what we've got going on, (laughs) where we don't have that many differences, but we can't even rectify them on a human level... Um, we'll just need to figure out how to get past our old concepts of power and control. I don't know how to do that, but it's kind of where we're at. He he really fails to realize that things can exist on the same plane uh, without needing to be dominant over each other or, you know, defined in kind of that imperialistic way. Although, to be fair, this is also in the midst of an imperialistic, you know, mindset in the world in the 1930s. So... You know, in defining that way, and we, we really do, we severely diminish the effectiveness of balance that's inherent to the Malachondrian way, and he, he doesn't see it as it works. Each group, you know, provides a very necessary and important and even appreciated function, and no function on this planet is said to be more important than the others, and they all believe this and ascribe to this view. So, I mean, of course, it's, you know, a a utopian vision that Lewis is giving us here. Uh, Especially, you know, so far as we haven't really acknowledged anything at our level here on Earth. But it is kind of a nice idea. Valuing things that aren't just what make us better than other beings. Um, Valuing things like emotional attuneness. And we have this conversation a lot with multiple intelligence Uh, And the idea that it doesn't have to just be scientific, rational intelligence that makes somebody good or makes somebody better. Um, But we do tend to kind of feel certain ways and superior about certain types of intelligence, of course. So luckily, you know, Ransom's ignorance gets overshadowed at the end here with Weston's very, very naive and stupid views uh, and his closed-mindedness, which we'll get later, later in the text. So maybe even Ransom gets a little bit of a free pass here. We only have one more episode left in this series, and there's a ton still left to talk about. There's a lot of things that we can learn um, from this kind of established openness in Lewis's narrative that I think, you know, really could make us better, uh, especially as we think about all the things that we've kind of done that have been super detrimental to our own environment, to our own subsistence, uh, and that are really threatening us pretty immediately as a result. He does offer some fixes. We'll have to take a look at those see how we feel about what he offers and whether or not there's, you know, fairness in those assessments. So, along with that, um, there are also some really interesting views of death that we'll have to look at too, uh, 
there's a the question of whether or not Lewis is even really being reasonable in his criticisms, and we've raised it a couple of times in this episode, too, that there's just certain things he points out where it's like, okay, what do you want us to do about that? Uh, and while it's easy to say, stupid ransom for all the things that I've enumerated in this episode, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, really, what other choices does he have? Um, is Lewis actually kind of being a bit unreasonable in his criticism of man? Is what he's saying kind of slightly unfair? I mean, it's, it's our system... I don't know. Now what? Thanks, Lewis. So we'll take a look at what we can actually achieve maybe in um, some of the fantastical news that he's given us here. So all this and more in our final episode of this particular series. Thank you for listening. I'm Stacey Cabrera and this has been Fill in the Details.